0: You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on January 20th, 2019, a reading from the book of Isaiah. And your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, I grew up in Pittsburgh. I lived most of my life to this point in Pittsburgh, and so I'm a transplant to to North Florida. But I want to tell you a little about the city of Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh uh, was known for the longest time, and actually still today, as a steel town. You may know that the, the football team in Pittsburgh is called the Steelers. And it's because Pittsburgh is a steel town. That was its industry uh, for most of the 20th century. There were lots of steel mills, and these lots of steel mills were coal fired and they created lots of pollution. There was so much pollution in the city of Pittsburgh, in fact, that uh, that when men would go to work, and I'm not talking about the men who worked in the steel mills, I'm talking about the men who went to the office buildings in the, the high rise towers in Pittsburgh, They used to have detachable collars, like I wear a detachable collar. They would wear theirs the other way and and have a tie. They would take an extra collar with them because they'd have to change it at lunchtime because it had gotten so dirty. This was just standard practice in Pittsburgh. That's how polluted the city of Pittsburgh was. And the rivers all became polluted and toxic. And when rivers become polluted and toxic, a lot of wildlife starts to disappear because wildlife needs rivers that are you know fresh and so the, the fish went away uh the fish started growing three heads well maybe not three heads but you know what i mean it was not uh, a place you want to go swimming even today uh, for people who have grown up in pittsburgh we see people go swimming in the river and we say i wouldn't do that if i were you it was a dirty place but then in the 1980s something happened steel from other countries started to become drastically cheaper than American-made steel. And because of that, the steel mills in Pittsburgh started to close and people started to lose their jobs. And so on top of the dirt and filth of the city of Pittsburgh, it became also a depressed place where people couldn't find work and where people were in a lot of trouble financially. And that's how a lot of people remember and think of Pittsburgh even today, as a depressed, dirty, former steel town. But that's not what pittsburgh is today i'm happy to tell you it has changed a lot over the last 20 years today it's clean its industries have shifted and its economy is thriving and growing in recent years pittsburgh has been ranked near the top on a number of lists of best places in america to live and pretty remarkable in in the last few years bald eagles which had long since departed because they eat fish From rivers and there were no more fish in the rivers the bald eagles have started coming back to pittsburgh and nesting in various places pittsburgh is a changed city it's a very different place than it was 50 or 60 years ago isaiah in our passage today describes the nation of israel in in terms very similar to the way that people used to think of pittsburgh forsaken and desolate forsaken and desolate the term forsaken has to do with the exile of god's people to babylon god had promised his people this land this land on the mediterranean this land of canaan it was a beautiful land it was a thriving land and it belongs to them but because of their wickedness god sent them away for a time god sent them to exile in babylon And so because of that, the people who had this identity as God's people, a special people, set apart God's chosen people on a land that God himself had given them. They felt forsaken. They felt abandoned. They felt lost. They felt desolate. And so these are the terms Isaiah uses to talk about Israel in this passage. He says they are desolate and he says they are forsaken. Their cities were destroyed, their people were killed, and their hope was lost. But these outward signs, these things that you could observe, were actually indications of the spiritual state of Israel. Because these people were wayward. They ran after other gods, and they had forsaken the Lord. And so the Lord had forsaken them. Their exile in Babylon didn't just happen. It was a consequence for their sin. It was a consequence for the fact that they had run away from God and that they were no longer following him. But Isaiah speaks these words in a section of the the book of Isaiah that is filled with hope. In the chapter just before this, he talks about the anointed one who's coming. The anointed one who's coming. And even as he's talking about Israel being forsaken and desolate, he's saying even then that that's not always going to be your name. God is going to give you a new name. God, people are going to think of you in different ways than what they're thinking of you right now. And so in Isaiah 62, verse 4, it says this. You shall no longer be termed forsaken. but instead you shall be called my delight is in her. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, but instead you will now be called my delight is in her. That's a big change, isn't it? From forsaken to delight. And this speaks to the tremendous change in their lives because of the favor of the Lord. It speaks to the change in our lives even still because of what Jesus has done for us. Isaiah uses another term to describe them as well. Forsaken and desolate. And another way that that Isaiah talks about this recovery is the term that replaces desolate. He says, You shall no longer be called desolate, but your land shall now be called desolate married you shall no longer be called desolate but your land shall now be called married and then in verse 62 5 he says this as a young man marries a young woman so shall your sons marry you and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your god rejoice over you If you're married, I want you to just think back to your wedding day for a moment. And if you're the man in that relationship, think back to watching your wife walk down the aisle. Carrie and I were married almost 14 years ago, and she will tell you that I cried for about three days in the context of our wedding. It started a couple days before, and I cried right through our wedding. I could barely say my vows because I was so overcome with joy. I was rejoicing over my bride, and I still am today. I rejoice over you. I love you, honey. (laughs) That is how God rejoices over us and over his people, Israel, in the Old Testament. You will no longer be termed desolate, but instead you will be called married. And as a young man rejoices over his bride, so the Lord will rejoice over you. This is the same exuberance that the Lord has when he looks upon his people. When he looks upon each one of us. Now in the Gospel of John that we read today, we see that Jesus' very first miracle, as recorded in the Gospel of John, is at this wedding in Cana of Galilee. And in verse two eleven, as I just read to the kids, it says... This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. We talked about this word manifested a few weeks ago on the Feast of the Epiphany. And it means an appearing, a revealing, a making known what has been hidden. And this is why this wedding at Cana story has often been associated with epiphany. Epiphany was originally uh, three celebrations all wrapped into one. There was so much to celebrate you didn't know what to celebrate and so it was the visit of the wise men it was the baptism of jesus that we celebrated last week it was the wedding at cana and it was the transfiguration which we'll talk about at the end of the season of epiphany where jesus's likeness is changed and he shines with all of his glory so all four of these used to be a part of the feast of the epiphany now we just celebrate the wise men on the feast of the epiphany but all the rest of them are still in the context of this season These are stories that reveal more of who Jesus is. That he's not just a man, but that he is in fact God himself. But the context of this particular miracle says something very important. Jesus could have picked any number of settings for his first miracle, but he chooses a wedding. Why a wedding? Because marriage is one of the most important images of God's love for his people. We see it all throughout the scriptures. It's sprinkled in every couple of chapters. Well, maybe every couple of books anyway. But the theme of marriage and God's marriage to his people and God's love for his people, like a bridegroom rejoicing over his bride, is from the very beginning in Genesis. And it goes all the way to the book of Revelation. It's a theme, it's a thread that runs its way all through every page of the scriptures. Marriage is the very first sacrament instituted in the Bible. Did you know that? Before there was communion, before there was baptism, before there was anointing for healing, before any of those sacraments, there was marriage. It's the very first sacrament instituted in the Bible. And it's instituted in chapter 2, almost the very beginning, it begins when God brings Adam and Eve together and he proclaims the words that are found in Genesis two twenty four. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one one flesh. That's the institution of the sacrament of marriage. God says it right from the very beginning. This is what marriage is going to look like. Man and woman united together in a special way that can't be described in any other way than that the two become one flesh. In the Anglican marriage rite, when we have a wedding, It starts with an introduction that I say is the priest as we prepare people to understand what's about to take place in this wedding that's about to happen. And part of that introductory paragraph says, Almighty God established the bond and covenant of marriage in creation as a sign of the mystical union between Christ and his church. Our Lord Jesus Christ adorned this manner of life by his presence at the first miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee and it is commended by scripture to be held in honor among all people. What this is saying in our marriage rite every time a couple gets married we're remembering all the way back to Genesis we're remembering this wedding at Cana in Galilee where Jesus does his first miracle. And in the context of all of that we're remembering that marriage is an image of the mystical union between Christ And his church and so just as the husband and the wife are bound together in a special way that makes them one flesh so also christ and his church are united together in a special way that makes them one united we become part of jesus the passage that we read for the epistle today talks about the body of christ how the church all of us together are the body of christ Each of us has different gifts given to us by the Spirit. Each of us have different roles to play in the church. None of us can be a Christian all on our own because we are the body of Christ. God has designed us to be knit together in this this grouping of people that is at union with him. This is the church. It's the body of Christ. And Christ is the groom and we are the bride. And the Lord rejoices over us. The Lord rejoices over us. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 32 uh, says this as well. It's Paul's uh, best passage to talk about how husbands and wives are supposed to treat one another with love and respect, submitting to one another. And at the end of this passage, it says the same thing. It says, remembering Genesis, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now the the Greek word for mystery is mysterion, and the Greek word for profound or great is mega. So this is a mega mystery. This is a mega mystery, and I'm saying that it belongs to Christ and the church every time you see a couple married every single time you see a husband and wife in that one flesh union it is an image a picture of how much God loves his church how much God rejoices over his church and the amazing thing is that both healthy marriages and struggling marriages are signs to the world of this relationship between Christ and his bride the church Healthy marriages and struggling marriages. Healthy marriages demonstrate the mutual love and submission that's described in Ephesians 5, where the husband and the wife are always bent towards one another, always seeking to serve one another, always seeking to respect and love one another. But God also uses struggling marriages in the scriptures, and this demonstrates even more, perhaps, how much God loves us, because we don't love him perfectly. And husbands and wives don't love each other perfectly. There's a story in the Old Testament about Hosea, who's one of the prophets. And Hosea's wife was running around with all the other men in town. She was a prostitute. And God told Hosea to welcome her back every single time. And he said to Hosea, this is how I love my people. That as much as they stray away from me, as much as they run away from me and go after other gods... I still love them. I am still their husband, and I am still calling them back to me. And so every Christian marriage, whether it's a a healthy marriage or whether it's a struggling marriage, every marriage demonstrates this love that Christ has for his church, that Christ has for all of us. I want you to look at the cover of your bulletin, and we have it up here as well. Um, This is an icon that was uh, painted recently or written recently. We talk about writing icons, not painting icons. And the name of this is uh, is from Italy. It's called Icono Mysterio Grande. Icono Mysterio Grande. And it's intended to talk about this passage from Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. And so I just want you to look at it, either on your bulletins or on the screen, either way. Notice first what's at the bottom of the image. You see a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. Maybe it's Adam and Eve, maybe it's any old couple, maybe it's you and your spouse. But you see a husband and wife, and what is their posture towards one another? They're bending towards one another. But look at their eyes now. Are their eyes gazing at one another? No, they're bent towards one another, but their eyes are gazing outward. Because marriage is not supposed to be an inward thing, it's supposed to be an outward thing. There's a special bond between the husband and wife, they're bent towards one another, they're at union with one another, but their marriage is intended to be an outward thing to draw others in. Not into the marriage relationship itself, but into the love of that marriage. And so we see this in the way that God brings out of marriage children. Both familial children, but also spiritual children. Because when you think about your marriage, you need to think about your marriage as a little church, a little representation of the church in your home. And just as the church is supposed to welcome people in and bring in new spiritual children for God, so also the home is supposed to be a place that raises up children for God, both familial children, children that have been adopted or born into the family, but also Neighbors and and other people who through the ministry of hospitality are drawn into christ's love as demonstrated by that image of marriage And the way that christ loves his church Remember every christian marriage points to that reality that christ loves his church that christ loves us And then notice just above the husband and wife You'll see an image of a dove who remembers what a dove stands for the Holy Spirit. And so this, this couple is not in this on their own. This marriage is not just between two parties. It's actually between three parties. There's the husband and the wife and the Holy Spirit who's uniting them together. Because you can't do marriage on your own. It's too hard. There's too many struggles. There's too many rough patches. There's too many things that might draw you apart from one another. But the Holy Spirit Is binding you together, drawing you back to each other, and drawing you up into the love that God has for you. And then look above the couple, even above the the dove and the Holy Spirit, what do you see? You see Christ and a woman. Who's the woman? It's the church. We see Christ in the church. And so what we're remembering here is that as that husband and wife are married, they are an image of the heavenly picture of Christ in his church. The whole of scriptures is going to end with a wedding banquet. Who's getting married? Christ and his church, the bride of Christ. We will all be drawn up into heaven. We will all be at this marriage banquet, not as guests, but as the bride. All of us together as the bride of Christ, drawn into the love of Jesus for his church. So this Christ's first miracle at the wedding in Galilee manifests his glory but marriage itself also manifests the beautiful truth about Christ and his church that God loves us unconditionally that he is always drawing us back into himself even when we run away from him, even when we stray from him, even when we feel forsaken and desolate God is right there He's waiting for us, waiting for us to turn back to him. Waiting to say, you shall no longer be termed forsaken, and you shall no longer be termed desolate. But you shall now be called, my delight is in her. And your land shall be called married. That's what God does for us. That's what God does for you. And so if you feel desolate and forsaken right now, know that God longs to call you his delight. And when you're ready to stop running, God will be right there behind you to embrace you as soon as you turn to him. So let us give thanks to God for how much he loves us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you love the world so much that you gave your only son, Jesus Christ, to take on human flesh, to enter into this creation, And to love his church so much that he was willing to take us as his bride. I pray, Lord, for every marriage in this place. I pray that you would bind husbands and wives together. That you would strengthen marriages, especially in places where they're weak. I pray that you'd bind up the brokenhearted. And pray, Lord, that you would draw husbands and wives together. And allow their marriages to be a demonstration of your love for the church. And I pray, Lord, that every marriage here would be fruitful in drawing new people to you. Whether familial children or spiritual children, I pray, Lord, that that every marriage in this church would be a marriage that draws new people to you. And I thank you, Lord, for the ultimate reality that you're drawing us to, for that final wedding banquet that we read about in the book of Revelation. And we pray, Lord, that you would welcome us there. And that we would embrace you as you embrace us. Help us to stop running from you. And help us to run to you instead. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org slash sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.